I need you every hour. I need the Lord to help me speak to you for the next hour, and you need the Lord to enable you to listen. Please take your Bibles and open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be reading from verses 8 to 13 as today's text, and that will be on page 992 of your Pew Bible. The title of our message today is Deacons, Assistance to the Elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The Constitution of the United States was drafted by the Constitutional Convention that met from May 25th through September 17th, 1787, in what is now Independence Hall in Philadelphia. In roughly 110 days, 55 delegates from the 13 states engaged in intense debate, controversy, and yes, maneuverings to draft the governing document of the United States. Having seen the failure of the Articles of Confederation and drawing on their extensive knowledge of forms of government throughout history, the result was a government scheme that, while not without its flaws, has served the nation fairly well since June 21, 1788, a period of 233 years. There have been 27 amendments enacted, one of which, which nullified a previous enactment. Of course, I'm talking about prohibition and the nullification of it. The United States government has survived a cataclysmic civil war, several attempts at armed insurrection, two foreign wars, four presidential assassinations, and one attack by a foreign nation 15 years before the date of my birth by Japan. For comparison, France, uh, France, often associated in its revolution with the United States, has now entered its fifth republic and its fifth scheme of government. Well, why did the Founding Fathers devote so much energy to a governing document and structure. Simply put, because the form and functioning of government has a profound effect, perhaps even a determining effect, on the success and prosperity of a nation. In his plan for the formation of his church, its divine head, the Lord Jesus Christ, has designed a system of government based on his total knowledge of all that the church will undergo throughout all periods of its history. He has established a government based on his perfect wisdom. It will never need amendment nor replacement by a new form of government. It anticipates and provides for all possible ecclesial needs and crises, and it optimizes all trade-offs between different potential forms of government. Furthermore, it is based on his most profound understanding of the human heart and human psychology by the divine creator of both. So our task here at Woodside Community Church is simply to install and operate this form of government as its designer intended. We must not alter it due to any considerations that arise from within or encroach from outside the church. To do so, would only lead to the most serious adverse consequences. One need merely to study church history 
to become convinced of this undeniable fact. Well, our summertime study in the letter of 1 Timothy covers doctrine and life in the church. Within this 13-week series, we've now come to the third week of an inner mini-series within the bigger one on the roles of different groups in the church. Mike Moultrie taught us concerning instructions on how men ought and ought not to pray, and for whom in the assembly of the saints, and the roles that women can and cannot fill. The government of the church consists of two formal offices, elder and deacon, to ensure its orderly management and guidance. Last week, Elder Mike presented to us the role of the elders, his office, as one of the two perpetual offices. So in today's message, Deacon Henry, that's me by the way, will present the second formal office of church leadership, that of the deacons, my office. We will discuss the following four aspects of the office. The origin of deacons, the function of deacons, the qualification of deacons, and finally the reward of deacons. Much of our time will be spent on the first two headings, the origin and function of the deacons, so that the membership here can arrive at a common understanding of the role of these persons and how that role developed in the church. What tasks, after all, will the deacons perform, and how will they relate with the elders? Then we will examine the qualifications of the office, emphasizing mainly the small but important differences between the qualifications of the offices of elder and deacon. The standard for elders, explained by Elder Moultrie last week, are largely applied equally to deacons. Finally, we'll close with an application or two, including an appeal to each one of you as why you must be concerned in the government of the church, really because the eternal good of your own soul depends on it. In your outline, or in your, in your bulletin, you have a two-page outline. I, I hope you'll be able to use it if it's helpful for you to follow along with me as I go through our text and our main points. So at this point, I'm going to read the text, and we'll pray, and we'll jump into our subject. This is also the text printed in your outline. So please pay close attention, because we've reached the point where I'm going to read to you God's holy word. Starting in verse chapter 8, 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you every hour. We need you in this hour so that we can uh, speak accurately from your word uh, about this question of the role of deacons and why it's important. 
We need you so that we can listen attentively as we ought to when your word is proclaimed. So please help me to be truthful and accurate. Please help our listeners to take into account and to learn to obey what your word says concerning the offices in the church. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's start with the origin of deacons. Traditionally, the consideration of the office and role of the deacons will begin with the passage that Mike read earlier from Acts chapter 6. In fact, if you were to pick up a whole bunch of books treating the subject of deacons or the subject of elders and deacons, almost all of them will start with that text. So let's spend a little time there in Acts chapter 6 and see what can be learned. You might want to turn there in your Bible. What we'll see is that the actual facts may to some degree deviate from the conclusion that many people would tend to draw from them. So let's pay close attention. The historical situation relates to the very first days of the fledgling Christian community in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit had been sent out upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost, one of the three annual Jewish feasts at which all male Jews of age were required to participate in Jerusalem. The mighty miracle of the tongues of fire was accompanied with the miraculous gift of languages. The multilingual crowd could all understand the proclamation of the apostles, and especially the evangelistic sermon of Peter in their own language. In Acts chapter 2, verse 5, we read that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, that is the sound of the rushing wind and the tongues of fire, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking to us Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. As a result of Peter's message, many of these listeners accepted his words and they were joined to this new Jesus movement. So those who received his word were baptized in verse 41, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Then we receive a portrait of how these initial believers entered into their new faith with great fervency and great devotion. In verse 42 in chapter 2, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. In fact, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. What a wonderful beginning of Christ's church. And what an excellent summary of the activities of his church. 
when it's organized according to the pattern of the expired apostles. Devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the common fellowship, to sharing common meals, including certainly the covenant meal instituted by Jesus before his death, and to prayer. Can we survey ourselves here at Woodside Community Church and testify that these four types of activities comprise the core of the ministry here? If so, we can be confident of God's blessing upon us for our obedience to his revealed will for his church. But it seems with every good development, with every advance, with every growth, problems inevitably arise. The new fellowship of believers gathered together from the nations of the Jewish diaspora remained at Jerusalem for instruction in their new faith from its apostolic founders longer than they would have sojourned there simply for the Feast of Harvest, which lasted seven days in Jerusalem. Inevitably and sadly, souls come attached to bodies, and bodies have practical needs. They get hungry, they need something to drink, and they need shelter. How would these needs be met in these extraordinary circumstances? Well, we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, where it says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see that the solution to the need for provision for so many new believers came in the form of an extraordinary and voluntary generosity on the part of those who own property that could be easily disposed to obtain the necessary resources. Most likely, the owners lived in Palestine and could effect the necessary transactions quickly, not like the cumbersome real estate transactions of today. What a marvelous testimony to the generosity and other selflessness engendered by the gospel. Well, may we exhibit such a spirit of generosity today when it's necessary. But was the problem solved? Well, unfortunately, no, or not at least totally, because a new problem raised its ugly head. Part of the great financial need of the new community involved provision for destitute widows. In those societies, of course, there was no social security system that existed to provide financial support for the elderly. It all came, had to come from one's own family. The sojourners who brought these widows to Jerusalem for the feast had run out of their personal resources. And so a distribution system was established to provide daily food for those in need, especially for widows. This program ran into a most natural difficulty that arose due to the multi-ethnic and multilingual nature of the membership. The Jews who still resided in the Jewish homeland of Palestine naturally spoke the Hebrew language or its common dialect, Aramaic. But Jews from the other parts of the Mediterranean world, even from the regions further east who had been scattered due to the Babylonian captivity, 
or many other forced relocations, spoke various local languages and at best held only the Greek language in common. These diverse Jews were labeled as Hellenists, that is Greek-speaking, in the text of Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It needs no understanding to imagine how difficult it must be to arrange regular meals for a large population of people speaking multiple languages, even if they shared rudimentary Greek as secondary language. And so inequities arose between them and the Hebrew-speaking Jewish recipients. Hmm. The twelve apostles learned of the complaint and they set forth a solution. The selection of seven men to organize and oversee the food distribution. This committee of seven has always been identified as the first deacons, or at least the proto-deacons of the church, even though the text in Acts chapter 6 does not make this identification explicit. So let's accept this identification. What can we learn from the apostolic foundation of the deacons or the diaconate? Well, first, we see that the apostles established high and formal qualifications for the chosen men. If you're in Acts chapter 6, you can look at verse 3. The apostles said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the candidates must be of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. Those were the first qualifications the apostles established. But secondly, we, notice, we must notice clearly that the candidates selected by the congregation were installed into a formal office in the church. In verse 5, the people chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte, that is originally someone who hadn't been Jewish, of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. The institution ceremony of the laying on of hands had been used throughout Israelite history as a means of formally recognizing and setting apart persons to a formal office of authority and responsibility over the people of God. Well, so much for the origin of deacons. So far, so good. Let's move on to the function of deacons. We can derive some idea of the functions of the office, even at this very early time in the history of the church. And here, I'm going to argue, and this is for you to evaluate, that an error of reasoning can occur. Let me state the error at the beginning and make it clear. It's frequently inferred from this account that the responsibility of church leadership divide into two non-overlapping categories that we might label, for lack of better terms, spiritual and temporal, or spiritual and physical. This conclusion draws a hard distinction between the two sets of functions, elders representing the higher or the spiritual affairs of the church, while deacons carry on the lower temporal or physical needs and affairs on their docket. Well, the difficulty with this interpretation lies in a whole bunch of places. It lies with its failure to consider several factors. The actual statements of the apostles at this crucial venture of institution of the office. It doesn't consider the broader context in Acts. It doesn't consider the subsequent New Testament data on the role of deacons. And it doesn't consider the practice of the ancient churches and modern churches with respect to deacons. So first, let's think carefully about the apostles' justification for the establishment of the new office in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. 
the apostles said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In the understanding against which I'm arguing, arguing, this statement is claimed to make kind of an impenetrable dividing wall between the two offices, elders and deacons. But actually the wall has only one side. The apostles, and subsequently following them the elders, should not leave their all-encompassing role of service to the word of God and to prayer to descend, as it were, into other responsibilities. That's the explicit justification for the creation of the new office. So the wall was there. The elders are not to go through it. But the apostles made no statement as to the limits or boundaries of the role of the deacons. Elders ought not to go beneath their spiritual responsibilities because those will fully occupy their time and capability. But deacons are nowhere limited from rising up to help carry spiritual responsibilities in the church under the direction of the elders. Hence, I'm calling it kind of a one-way wall. You know those one-way mirrors where you can see one way and not the other? It's a one-way wall. The elders aren't to go through this direction, but the deacons are, are allowed to come up and help the elders in the other direction. Next, consider the immediate and broader context in the book of Acts. The necessary qualifications for the deacons in verse 3 were men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. Hmm. With all due respect for those of you employed in the food service industry and those who happily cook and clean for their immediate households, these qualifications simply are not required to serve tables, make meals, wash dishes, or tend the family garden. People lacking these qualities can do a perfectly fine job at those tasks and are quite welcome to come and cook meals for me. I'll take applications after the service. The qualifications on the deacons must relate to a broader and more open-ended and much more weighty set of duties assigned by the apostles as the church progressed. As further evidence that the deacons were not limited to mundane physical tasks, notice the subsequent history of some of these deacons in the narrative in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen overpowered the opponents of the faith with his wisdom and spirit, which were exactly the qualifications insisted upon by the apostles for the deacon's office. In Acts chapter 6, verse 10, Stephen's opponents could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In fact, Stephen spoke the longest apologetic message in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. And he became an early martyr of the church. And he was uniquely honored by Jesus upon his death. In chapter 7, verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Son of God. Jesus was standing in honor of the death of his first martyr in the church. Philip served as an evangelist in Samaria in chapter 8 of Acts, and he performed signs, healings, and exorcisms. The apostles came and validated his ministry. Later, he served instrumentally in the conversion of a high Ethiopian official whom he baptized in chapter 8. He evangelized in Caesarea, And later on in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 8, he and his four distinguished daughters, who were prophetesses, hosted Paul and Luke during their missionary journeys. 
Similar facts are recorded about the other seven deacons in the less reliable and non-authoritative body of Christian tradition. Thus, the most attested conclusion about the foundation of the deacons and their roles in the book of Acts is that at their institution, the apostles and later the elders set a protective lower bound on their own activities, not an upper bound on the function of the deacons. The deacons serve the church and the elders in various forms of ministry, many evidently spiritual in nature under the authority of the apostles. In the remainder of the New Testament, deacons are mentioned only in conjunction with elders. In fact, the sole reference to the office of deacon outside our text in 1 Timothy 3 occurs in Philippians 1, chapter 1, where Paul wrote his greeting, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, all the saints, with the overseers and deacons. So in his greeting to open his letter, Paul makes a distinction between the mass of rank-and-file saints who belong to the church at Philippi, but then distinguishes the men that hold formal office in leadership over the church, the overseers and deacons. Further information concerning the role of the deacons can be found in the meaning of the word deacon, used always in the plural to describe the office, a group of men. And it's a noun form from the word family founded in the Greek word meaning to serve. A recent exhaustive thesis by Clarence Agin surveys 770 uses of the word group from surviving literature between the 6th century BC to the 3rd century AD. He identified four basic categories of meaning. These included table service, think of a waiter or a waitress, domestic service, think of a domestic slave, a communication or delivery servant entrusted with a message, so think of a courier or an ambassador, and finally agency or instrument, a subordinate carrying out an assignment on a superior's behalf and having full authority to execute the superior's delegated task. So keeping these various categories of meaning in mind and now examining the list of qualifications for deacons listed in our text and the association of their office immediately with the office of elders, the most suitable contextual meaning for deacons seems to be the last meaning, subordinates serving by completing tasks using authority granted by their superior. Hence, deacons serve as assistants to the elders. And that's where I got the title for today's sermon. Quoting from Alexander Strach's book, Paul's Vision for the Deacons, quote, The deacons represent the elders and act on their behalf in service to God's church. It follows, then, that they, like the elders, need to be properly qualified, examined, and approved by the church. And, as assistants of the elders and church office holders, the deacons will exercise a measure of formal authority in the congregation, but always under the authority of the elders. Here I, end quote, sorry. Here I want to briefly mention also the historical practices of the ancient times with respect to the function of deacons. And these are preserved into the modern era by the ancient historical churches. Early insight into the initial function of deacons comes from the writing known as the Didache, written about 100 AD, and that was recently rediscovered in the 19th century. In chapter 15, it says, Appoint for yourselves, therefore, bishops and deacons, bishops is an interchangeable word for elders, worthy of the Lord, men who are meek, 
and not lovers of money, and true and approved. For unto you they also perform the service of the prophets and teachers. Therefore despise them not, for they are your honorable men along with the prophets and teachers. Ignatius, early bishop of Antioch, wrote in the second century concerning deacons with respect and honor. Even if it is a little bit over the top, he wrote, Deacons are not the deacons of food and drink, but servants of the church of God. Let everyone respect the deacons as they would respect Jesus Christ. Well, that's the part that's a bit over the top. And just as they respect the bishop as a type of the father and the presbyters as the council of God and the college of the apostles. So we've seen the first century, the second century. Likewise, Bishop Cyprian in North Africa in the early third century, the great champion of the church hierarchy, wrote that the apostles appointed for themselves deacons after the ascent of the Lord into heaven as ministers of their episcopacy and of the church. Let's translate that into our terminology as servants or assistants of the elders and of the church. And we could go on, multiply quotations, but just looking in today's Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, the deacons can perform any function of the priests except those relegated to the sacramental economy of the church and functions that are explicitly rejected as non-biblical by Protestants. For example, the deacons cannot consecrate or transubstantiate the elements of communion in the Mass, nor can they forgive the sins of penitence in the confessional. So finally, halfway through my text, or my outline, we come to today's text in 1 Timothy, where the two offices appear joined together. So please turn back there. We'll spend the rest of our time there. Elders are described first, deacons appearing together with them, but afterwards. Let's now examine the qualifications of deacons established by the Apostle Paul. First, as a general observation, I think you'll see that the stringency of the qualification of deacons very much supports the conclusion that deacons carry on substantial and important roles in the church community. Again, while a hungry man carries little for anything beyond food and, and doesn't look in so much into the qualifications of the one who prepares for them, the qualifications listed here, we can agree, go rather beyond those needed for a competent chef or kitchen, kitchen crew. In fact, there exists substantial overlap between the requirements of the two offices of elders and deacons. Elder Moultrie reviewed the list pertaining to his office last week. I wonder where Elder Moultrie is. I assume he's here somewhere. And I must refer you to listen attentively to that message if you've not already done so. Since given our limited time today, we're only going to briefly survey the qualifications that are shared between the two offices presuming that Mike's explanations from last week will suffice. And then we'll spend more effort to identify and understand the most important differences between the two offices. So qualifications held in common for both offices include, first, in verse 12, he must be a man of one woman or the husband of one wife, holding to the highest and true standard of marital fidelity. As Mike explained last week, an unmarried man is not excluded necessarily. In verse 8, he must not be addicted to much wine. He must be no drunkard or one tending toward that end. Hmm. Let's regard this prohibition in the spirit in which it was intended and not with wooden literalness, if you please. It equally disqualifies a man who, while avoiding wine, regularly consumes kegs of beer on the weekend, 
or closets full of vodka for you Slavic folks or Russians. And similarly excludes a man frequently surrounded by a cloud bearing the pungent odor of marijuana smoke. Any addiction or immoderate use of potentially controlling substances demonstrates at the very least a lack of spiritual maturity and satisfaction in God and excludes that man from church office. In verse 8, the deacon must be not a lover of money or a lover of dishonest gain. Really, beyond the fatal dangers that love of money present to the soul of every person in the church, the deacon will have dealing with the finances of the church community when assigned to help the habitually poor and others who fall into occasional need. So temptation to financial dishonesty in an office holder of the church who has access to common funds can obviously lead to havoc and widespread damage. In verse 12, we see the deacon must manage his children and household well. As Mike explained last week, the first test of a man's skill in managing other people must be demonstrated in the crucible and development laboratory of his own family. Loving management of children and other members of a man's household, such as elderly parents, siblings, and even domestic dependents or workers, demonstrate his capability and qualification to assist in the management of the church, which after all is God's large and well-beloved household. And then finally in verse 9, just like elders, the deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The deacon, like the elder, must have incorporated the whole body of Christian teaching, the mystery of the faith, into his life in a complete way so that he lives in accordance with its mandates, so that he understands the world and life through its lens, and so that he cannot be accused of hypocrisy or wavering. So let's now move on to some standards for deacons that may be unique for them as contrasted to elders or may simply be implied to be true of elders as well. The first is that he cannot be double-tongued, verse 8. I I should have looked in the mirror this morning to check my tongue. You know, there was a while where teenagers were getting their tongues cut. Oh, that's awful. I don't know if you've ever seen that. What a wonderful metaphor this is to indicate that a deacon must be a man who speaks truthfully and consistently at all times. He cannot deliver contradictory messages to different people or employ different standards of fairness in dealing with different groups within the church. He must hold to the highest level of probity and equity among people. How easy it is to favor people that think like you, that look like you, and that reflect you back to yourself. But the church of Jesus consists of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and family. And this beautiful diversity must be appreciated and treated with the strictest judgment and equality. If you're as old as I am, you remember there used to be a common trope in American fiction back before the days of suffocating identity politics that American Indians would say of the dishonest European settlers driving them from their, their land that white man speaks with forked tongue. The deacons cannot be men speaking with deceptive, dishonest, forked tongues. And then perhaps surprisingly in verse 11, Paul takes a slight detour into necessary qualifications for deacons' wives. We can only uh, speculate why Paul includes qualifications here for wives of deacons when he said not a word apparently about the wives of elders. One possible explanation is that Paul apparently holds the elders to a higher family standard than the deacons 
measured at the level of the behavior of their children. Because we read in Titus 1 verse 6, where the children of the elder cannot be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So perhaps Paul felt that measuring family management at the point of the behavior result in the children would be an adequate assessment to the suitability of the wives of the elders. However, another possible reason that seems more likely to me is that the range of the tasks assigned to the deacons might include more opportunities for the involvement of the deacons' wives. Elders are to confine themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. We've already seen that in the formal setting of the community of Jesus' disciples, women are not allowed to teach or exercise authority over men, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. It may be true, then, that the wives of elders will enjoy less scope for direct involvement in their husbands' formal church responsibilities than wives of deacons. Certainly, should the wife of a potential elder be a one-woman wrecking crew, leaving behind herself a wide trail of human destruction, you would not want her husband to be the highest earthly leader of the church after Christ its head. Certainly that unfortunate man would have enough problems of his own. But Paul remains silent here on the subject of the wives of elders. However, Paul does establish four qualifications to be enforced in the case of the wives of deacons in verse 11. They must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, and faithful in all things. Now, when I'm assigned a text of scripture to teach, I begin by writing it out in its original Greek language, and I examine this syntax and translation to see what I can learn. I chuckled out loud when I read in Greek the qualification that the wife cannot be a slanderer. To slander someone typically means to speak lies about that person with intent to damage their reputation or standing. The Greek adjective is diabolos, translated here as slanderer, but it's also used as a personal name in the New Testament for Satan, the father of lies. So at first glance to this beginning Greek student, the unwary student observed that the deacon's wives cannot be the devil. (laughs) Well, don't worry, ladies. We all know that sometimes your husbands may have acted like the devil as well. Some of the wives are poking their husbands at this point. Since the wives of the deacons may have opportunity and desire to assist their husbands on suitable tasks assigned by the elders, Paul institutes safeguards so that the church will not suffer harm at the hands of an imprudent or otherwise dangerous wife. She must be dignified because God deserves dignified representatives to publicly guide our service to him. She must not spread slander or gossip about the saints in the church, especially since she may have access to privileged information through her husband. She must be sober-minded, which literally would imply not a drunkard, but metaphorically fully understanding that eternal realities are at stake in the church and exercising corresponding self-control. And finally, she must demonstrate faithfulness in all things. When entrusted by her husband with tasks serving the church, there must be confidence that those tasks will be completed and completed with competence and care. The stakes for lack of diligence and quality in service to the church are too high to allow acceptance of lower standards. So much for the wives of deacons. Next we read in verse 10 that deacons must be tested prior to their formal installation into church office. 
In this case, Paul's omission of the same requirement for elders in the immediate context can only be explained by assuming that he simply assumes the elders will be carefully tested prior to appointment. As evidence of his assumption, he writes later in chapter 5, verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands for the ordination of elders. Perhaps the explicit requirement here for the testing of deacons stands as a safeguard against churches that would downgrade the job description of the deacons, as many have, to merely physical and menial tasks, and that thus would be tempted to apply little or no scrutiny prior to the appointment of their deacons. No, Paul says, the deacon candidates must be tempted and then placed into office only if they prove themselves to be blameless as the outcome of their testing. He gives no specific instruction as to the exact methodology of testing, so it could vary from time to time and place to place due to the peculiar circumstances of each individual church. It's not hard to imagine, for instance, that the testing of deacons in a church undergoing an unavoidable period of intense persecution would need to be more thorough and careful than in other situations, since incompetent or traitorous deacons could cost the lives of members of the church in those circumstances. However the testing might occur, it's mandatory, and the congregation must also be involved in the final judgment of the qualifications of the candidates that enter into the office. So now, taking the qualifications for deacons as an entire set, we seem bound to conclude again that the deacons, uh, the qualifications serve as a doorkeeper to guard the quality and successful ministry of men who would enter into the role of office bearers in Christ's church, serving as deacons, assisting the elders. We've examined the subtle but important differences in the qualifications of the offices of deacons and elders. But let's briefly take note of one important difference in the other direction. According to chapter 3, verse 2 in 1 Timothy, elders must be able to teach. In the parallel passage in Titus, Paul insists on this ability. Elders must, in verse 9, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Here, Paul plainly explains the most important responsibility of the elders. They must hold firmly and teach soundly and accurately the doctrines of the Christian faith as given by Jesus and his apostles. And they must be able to rebuke, and if need be, to silence those who contradict this precious body of saving truth. Any candidate for eldership must clearly meet this high and crucial standard. But deacons, however, are not required in their examination for office to attain to the same standard. Not that deacons are forbidden to teach sound doctrine or forbidden to rebuke those who contradict it. In fact, we saw Philip and Stephen, the early proto-deacons, performing exactly those functions in the early days of the church. But these essential responsibilities fall into the portfolio of the elders, not the deacons. And so a man not necessarily motivated or interested to teach or not skilled at teaching need not be disqualified to be a deacon. It's a good thing because I'm teaching here. um, Finally, we come to the reward for deacons. You know, God is a gracious master, isn't he? While he is due the full servitude of his servants, and does not, he does not simply reap the benefits of their labors and then send them off to debility and death. 
Rather, he provides the most generous reward for those who give themselves up to his service in response to his call and those that serve him well. Look in verse 13 at the promised rewards for the deacons. First, we find that those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing, a place of public honor and recognition in the community of the church. Then we also see that long continuance in doing good in the office of deacon acts as a positive feedback, as it were, to the confidence that the holder of the office has in saving the saving faith that's set on Jesus Christ. The deacons, as assistants to the elders, help to mold, strengthen, and sometimes correct the faith of the individual members of the church. How commonly do we all observe and how natural it occurs that those who teach or guide others in some common endeavor simultaneously improve their own grasp on it? So we ought not to be surprised to hear that deacons who serve well, strengthening the faith of the covenant community, also strengthen their own faith as a sort of byproduct of their efforts on behalf of the saints. And the rewards promised to faithful deacons consist well with our thesis that they serve an important and well as phys- important spiritual as well as physical capabilities as assistance to the elders. Well, let's close with a couple of simple but important applications. Our first application, my first application to you, consists of encouragement to all members of Woodside Community Church. The pathway to fruitfulness in the Christian life for each one of us passes along the road of servanthood, following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus. So the fact that one of the two formal offices of the church bears the title servants, which is the literal meaning of the word deacons, in no way changes the fact that each and every one of you members has the responsibility to grow and serve the church of Christ, because that's what you've been called to. Don't think, you get a, don't think you receive a get-out-of-jail pass free simply because there are people called servants. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, Jesus said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as each individual church member gives their lives in service, they're simply following the example of the faithful Lord Jesus. The responsibility to build up the church into the maturity of the faith ultimately belongs to each one of its members, not merely the elders and deacons. The leadership of the church, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, equips the saints, that is all the members of the church, for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, every joint with which it is equipped, that's the individuals in the church, when each part is working correctly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So each believer, each one of us, must use our capabilities, our resources, our talents, and indeed our uniqueness to best serve the body and build it up. 
in thus serving the church and serving one another, we're serving its head, the Lord Jesus. So that's my first application. But the second and the primary application is this. Perhaps some of you would like to say to me or ask me at this point, Deacon Henry, Elder Mike, you can ask Mike as well. Deacon Henry, Elder Mike, why should we care so much about elders and deacons? We average one of the male church members can go about our daily lives with little or no interaction with these office holders in the church. Well, good question. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to let Paul the Apostle answer your question. Please listen to his most weighty admonition to Timothy concerning Timothy's role as an overseer in the church. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, Paul said to Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Now listen carefully. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul instructs the proto-elder Timothy and generation after generation of elders that will come after him to carefully guard themselves and their teaching. Why? What will result from the fulfillment of their duties? Well, simply, they will save both themselves and their hearers. Now, Paul does not mean that the elders purchase their own salvation or merit it or earn it, and certainly they don't purchase or merit the salvation of their audience. Only Christ Jesus made possible the eternal salvation of sinners by living and dying in their place as a substitute so that his perfect righteousness could be credited to their account, as it were, by virtue of their union with him through faith and so that his sufferings can be credited to them as fulfilling the penalty that the law of God demands for their sins. The work of salvation completed by Jesus stands as a grand objective fact. But please, let us receive Paul's admonition in a most serious way. What consequences might happen should the leaders fail at their duties or the church members fail to derive the intended advantages by not fulfilling their own duties? Many, many people make an initial entry, an inquiry, and even a profession into the saving faith of the gospel. But really, they do not possess true, lasting faith. If you've lived long enough, you've seen this over and over and over again. These people believe for a while, but when times of trouble or persecution arise, they fall away because they have no genuine root of faith deep within their souls. They may progress for a while, even for a long while, but then when the difficult work begins of fighting and killing their sins and learning universal obedience to the commandments of God, they find that they prefer the riches and pleasures of this life, which offer more ease and immediate enjoyment, and they fatally choose to turn back and allow what faith they had to be choked and die. So brothers and sisters, members of Woodside Church, your profession of faith marked just your entry into the Christian life. You must endure to the end to be saved. You must pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God will undertake to keep you safe by his power, but he will do so precisely by using the means and the people he has ordained for this purpose. The elders are those that God will employ to teach you the truths of his word, to urge you on to holiness and obedience, and to correct you when you need to be corrected, 
even painfully if necessary. The deacons will assist the elders in carrying out these essential tasks. Why should anyone expect to reach the goal of eternal life if they, ex- if they forsake the pathway to life and the helps that God has established in his divine wisdom? So my answer to your question, actually Paul's answer, is that you should care about the elders and deacons because they, as well as you, care about your own souls. And finally, members of Woodside Community Church, listen to the commands of the apostles to you regarding, with your, regarding your interactions, your relationship, and your attitude toward the leaders of the church. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In the four imperative verbs in these verses, you have your application, the importance of the elders and deacons to you and what you should do. Obey, submit to, respect, and esteem your leaders in the Lord, and reap the benefits as they guide you to the certain attainment of eternal life. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, um, the admonition to Paul of Paul to Timothy is very serious, that the elders are to take attention to their lives and to their doctrine so that they might save themselves and those who listen to them, and the deacons are to help them in this task. Lord, we have been working for more than a year to try to align the government of Woodside Community Church with these uh, outlines and and requirements in Scripture, and uh, we've made progress in that way. I'm I'm sure there's more progress to be made, so I pray that you'd help us as a body to enact biblical church leadership. Most especially from these uh, messages these last two weeks, may you help us as members. All of us are under the authority of the elders and deacons. Even those in the offices are submitted one to the other. And all of this is to protect us and guide us and allow us to arrive safely at the desired haven of eternal life. So please help us. We each need your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.